Too many times we stand aside and let the water slip away to what we put off to tomorrow as fine we come today. So don't stand upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. Hello again, ladies and gentlemen. I am the blind blogger, Maxwell Ivy, and this is another episode of What's Your Excuse? Where we will challenge those excuses that are holding you back, and I'll do that by bringing you interviews with people people who have overcome adversity or difficult life circumstances, people who have struck out on their own and started their own business, uh, experts who can share actionable, real-world tested advice and suggestions with you, or people I just happen to find interesting, inspiring people that I look up to and, and would like to talk to on the show. Um, you can find me at theblindblogger.net, blindblogger.net, and uh, that's also where you can hire me to reach out for you and get you booked on podcasts, radio shows, and other online platforms so you can share your story and reach a wider audience. Um, I do want to thank our sponsors, Chip and Pam Edwards at createmyvoice.com. Uh, they provide a wonderful service where they get your blog and your podcast set up so that it can be found, accessed, listened to on the Alexa and Google smart home speakers. So people can hear your podcast in their car, at their home, while they're working. I hear they can even hear it on their refrigerators nowadays. But you have access to literally millions of potential new followers, fans, subscribers, and customers if you get your site, your blog set up for Alexa and Google. And Chip and Pam at createmyvoice.com will help you with that. So today I'm welcome to have another guest. Um, I'm really interested to connect with him and hear his story about how he got to where he is now. His name is Ryan Neris. Um, he says that he was a 20-something graduate with a degree in psychology and a master's in business um, who had more student debt than assets. Uh, he had no money experience or connections, but he did have one thing. He had the, this, uh, this personality that would refuse to quit and the willingness to do things other people would probably not do. Uh, you can find him and his company at um, uh, ArchimedesGRP.com. Uh, he now runs a company that does over $2 million in gross revenue a year, uh, operating now 10 mobile home parks in the southeast mostly. But he's also involved in charity work, offering scholarships, and even helping some of his uh, some of his renters or tenants, I'll have to ask him what he calls them in a minute here, uh, with their, with their, improve their credit. So I hope y'all will check out uh, Ryan at uh, ArchimedesGRP.com. Ryan, thank you and welcome to the show. I am honored to be here and I'm excited to talk. Oh, great, great. I, I always, uh, I, I was, I think I did a pretty good job of going through your bio there. Um, I think the thing that jumps out at me first, because I've done a lot of these myself, is what are some of the things you did that other, you think other people wouldn't be willing to do? Because I want to show people what it takes if they really want to succeed. Oh, yeah. How about I quit my job 
paid myself less than dramatically less than half of what I was making, lived in a mobile home for 14 months every other week, four hours away from my wife and all my friends. I had nothing in that mobile home. I had two lawn chairs and a TV that didn't even have a stand, so it was leaning on the side of the wall, <laughs> and a blow-up mattress. And I, my business partner, Ian, and I decided, let us make this thing so uncomfortable to be in that when we're in Atlanta, all we're doing is working. So, yeah, in my industry, no one wants to be property managers. They all want to syndicate deals. They want to do the sexy, fun thing, which is go raise money and buy parks. But what I want to do is I want to buy a property that needs some TLC, roll up my sleeves and make that property better for me having been there. I see. Have you done like landscaping, construction, uh, renovation? Have you done stuff like that actually? Oh, absolutely. No, with my own two hands, I don't think, I don't think you want me touching, <laughs> touching a lot of that stuff. But we, I mean, we've partnered with our, our residents, which is so meaningful to us to, we, we call them keep the money in the community campaigns. So what we'll do is we'll put together a little database of everybody that lives in the community. Like Mr. Smith is a roofer and Mr. Gonzalez does drywall. And in that way, so when, when someone comes into the office or calls into the main line, hey, can, is there anyone here who will cut me a deal because they want some work on the side and this is what they do professionally? And it's like, yes, absolutely. Let's, let's keep, let's build. I, I like to say I am in the community building business, not the real estate business, because if you have a strong community, it will self-police. It will have its own culture that's really strong. And then your job becomes easy because you are working with your clients to build what you want, which is a good, clean, safe place to live. I started out asking one question. You answered a better one. I like that. Um, <laughs> and I love, love how you talk about it. you're creating communities because that's what people like me are trying to do online is create communities. People that have uh, complementary skills, sometimes even people I compete with, who that when you have a problem or a need, you can reach out to somebody you already have a relationship with and you go, hey, can you do this for me? So um, you have people in the parks and y'all create a database. And I tell you, you've actually got me thinking it might be cool to live in one of your parks, man. Because um, as a blind person, a lot of times it comes down to, can I find somebody to do something for me? You know? So the idea of living in a community that's really community, which doesn't exist a lot in this country anymore is, is actually pretty, pretty, uh, pretty uh, attractive. So. I would, I would, I would agree. And I would say that it's one thing that over the years, so I'm only, I'm 32 years old now, but I remember when, when I was growing up, when someone would knock at the front door, everybody in the house would get excited because you have company. And when the phone would ring, you'd rush to the phone because you want to pick up the phone and you'd know your neighbors and you'd play with the kids on the block and at least in the neighborhood that I live in and the neighborhoods that I've lived in, I've barely known who my neighbors were. And it's, it's a cultural thing. My generation, it's funny. We would rather text than answer a call. There's a bunch of, there's a lot, there's a lot of humor right now on the internet. If you are into meme culture about how my generation would just 
utterly hate to answer the phone. We'd rather text. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, I hate to say dying, but it's certainly not what it was even a few decades ago when I was young and growing up. And I think there's so much value in that, that it's worth fighting for, even if it's, its life cycle has expired. Well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm hoping that you're wrong about it being expired, because if you think about it, 30 years ago, we had this, uh, when it came to housing, uh, when people got to be 18 or 20 or 22, they went off and they got their own house, and then they would have their own families. But 50 years ago, you would have two, three, sometimes four generations of families living in a home together. You know, now because of financial reasons, people getting older, more and more health issues, and of course, problems with the healthcare system itself, we're go- we've, we've come back around to the idea of two and three generations living in the same household. So maybe the idea of a community could still come back to it, you. You may be right about that. It's, it's, out, it's unbelievable how much rents have skyrocketed while wages have stayed stagnant. And, you know, I'm caught up in it because I am in the housing industry. So I benefit by having all rents around me raising up. But it's one of those things where even my in-laws voiced concern about, hey, if if things got really bad, could we do that whole we live downstairs in the basement, you and the wife and the kids live upstairs type thing. And, and of course we're family, right? So the answer is always yes. But I think what you saw in New York city and San Francisco, where young people would go and live with three, four, sometimes five roommates and a hole in the wall is becoming a lot more commonplace all over the place. I mean, even my business partner in downtown Charlotte, which is, you know, it's, it's a bigger city, but it's not Houston or Chicago. Even he has two or three roommates and a really high rent, you know, so it's, it's a sad truth of life that that's, you know, what the market is doing right now. But to your point, maybe what we'll see is go a reversion back to the sense of community because we'll have to. Right. A lot of times it does come down to necessity more than anything else. Or uh, as they say, the only thing that's universal is green, you know? Um, uh, so, so I, I love that you, uh, that you, you know, you are working on this. Um, it is sad that we have um, places like San Francisco and New York and Southern California where, uh, where people really can't afford to live. Uh, they find ways to do it, but they really can't afford it. We are seeing growth in the, homeless populations in those cities. In a lot of cases, these homeless people have jobs. It's not like the homeless of the 80s where many of them were were previous mental patients or drug users. A lot of these people have jobs, if not two of them, but still can't afford their rent. It's, it's the truth. It's really sad. But, and, it's, and it's really easy for someone to look at that and go, well, why don't you just move? But... The, <laughs> The thing is, if you if you follow McKinsey, the consulting company, they just released a report that basically confirmed what a lot of us were thinking, which is that cities are booming in the United States right now. People are dropping everything to move to cities, and rural America is getting pounded, and I mean pounded, and 
if you if you go well, hey, I want to live somewhere where I pay two hundred dollars a month or less. You're going to the middle of nowhere, and you're going to pay for that one way or another. In the regard that you may not be able to find a job all the way out there, and if you if you can't, you're going to be commuting to the city, which is going to be outrageously expensive too. And the the interesting thing is, if you study South America, one way they've kind of combated this, especially like the favelas in Brazil, is they've actually made they've invested a ton in their infrastructure to make commuting from the more rural areas to city center a lot cheaper and a lot easier. And what they've actually found over the years of having done that is if you allow people a cheap way to get downtown, they all of a sudden can save money and go to school and lift themselves from poverty. But the tough thing about the United States of America is we were built around the automobile and we were built around sad things like white flight where you had the the suburbs just boom. And if you're if you're in, for example, Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the biggest problems Charlotte, North Carolina had, my hometown, was that we were constantly annexing more land. So our roads are just not really well laid out. So if you are not by a highway, it can take you forever to get somewhere because you're going to hit red light after red light after red light. So our cities aren't, some of them are not designed the best, but yeah, there's a lot to be learned from other countries. And me being in the, the affordable housing space, I, I deal with, with the working class folks and you would be surprised who they are. They're not who you think they are. Sure. We have the trailer park boys and the Hollywood folks where they're, they're just bizarre behavior, but you also have teachers, single mothers, divorced folks. I, I have MBAs. I have grad people with graduate degrees who felt fallen on really hard times. I'll, I'll give you a good, for example, me personally, my son was born premature and he had to have uh, about 16 days in the NICU and his bill and my wife's bill ended up being $119,000 and counting. Now, now, thankfully we have health insurance and we saved a little bit of money to pay for our deductibles. But if you were in the wrong spot at the wrong time between jobs, couldn't afford COBRA insurance or whatever, whatever, in the United States of America, or even if you just get in a car accident and you have to have surgery, you're done. You, your credit is done. and You're roasted. And it's, it's a really sad fact of life. But there are a lot of people in my communities you would never ever guess would be there. Your neighbors, the people that you you go to church with, that you work next to, may live in affordable housing and you just wouldn't know it because of things that are sometimes in their control and sometimes outside of their control. Yeah, I have a, a good friend in uh, the Philadelphia area who's an interior designer for a while. She um, she did it too. She, ref- she, said it's, she said it's better now than it would have been 20 years ago because now she can tell people she's a tiny houses person and they don't, they don't have the same opinion of her. They would, if she said I'm living in a mobile home, you know? Um, but thankfully the minimalist people are probably helping the image of mobile home parks. I mean, we have these TV shows where people are bragging about living in 300, 400 square feet. And I'm imagining a lot of your homes are more, more spacious than that. You know? Yeah, our average hovers between 900 and 1,000 square feet. But the advantage of a mobile home park is you get a yard. And you're not an apartment. 
it, it's not an apartment where you hear your neighbors above, below, and side to side of you, right? So you have a little spot of land. And so what that does is that attracts families because the kids have a yard and because it's, you have that sense of community. So it's, it's not, it's a flavor of affordable housing that I guess not a lot of folks consider. It's one of those things where the sad truth of it is there was a mass shooting, unfortunately, which one, right. But recently where a, a gentleman went and he, he ended up shooting like five people on five different properties and I'm pretty sure someone passed away, but he did end up shooting someone in a mobile home park and it was not fatal, but the headline was man goes on shooting rampage in trailer park. Oh, so it's just, it's a, it's a catchier <coughs> headline. And, and we yeah. have a lot of work to do in my industry, raising the way we talk about mobile home parks and manufactured housing in general, because unfortunately it's been very negatively stigmatized in Hollywood. Right. Um, my family used to operate a carnival. I still have many of people in the industry. And a couple of years back, there was a, uh, a pedophile or, or somebody who was, was molesting young, young teenage uh, girls or boys. And, it, and the headline wasn't that he had been doing it for years. It was that they found him at the carnival, you know. So I can see what you're talking about as far as the shooting, the headline being they did it at the mobile home park. Um, a little earlier, you were talking about the kinds of people you find in your parks, and it's a surprise for people, and that there are a lot of people struggling. That um, so, why don't we use that as an opportunity to uh, to let you talk about the the charity work that you're doing and the ways you and our communities are helping the people that live in your communities? I would love to, because that's what keeps me going every day. Um, Look, making money is fun and building something is fun. But at the end of the day, you're no matter what you choose in life, you are going to get your butt kicked, period. You're going to have days where you wake up and you go, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> if you have a very strong sense of why, if you don't have a very strong meaning and purpose behind what you do, you will quit. I'm a very determined person, but it's a very short list of things that I've actually stuck with for years and years and years. I have a very long list of things that I thought were cool that were 15 minutes of, of my attention and then, and then gone. I mean, even I got, a, I got my black belt in high school in Haitian Karate, and I got my black belt, and I don't think I went to a class ever after that. And the, the point I'm trying to make there is your subconscious when you set a goal you will fight to achieve that goal and then when it's done you're done even if it's something it took me three it's about three and a half years to get my black belt in high school and as soon as I got it I was done because that was the end game right so if you don't have a very clear end game uh, you will quit period and for me charity work is what what is my end game is is that I, I believe in the when the oxygen masks go down in the airplane, you put yours and you secure your oxygen mask first, and then you help others. And that's kind of how I look at it. So a few things that we do is we pay for college applications. We have a partial scholarship for our residents. We partner with Paley's. And if the resident opts in, they can every time pay their rent, build credit 
We do free food giveaways. We've done Bible studies. We've done free Zumba classes. We've done little parties where we'll partner with a local church and they'll come in and bring food and, and play music. And, and I mentioned the, the campaigns to keep the money in the community. And the, the big reason, like I said, why I do all that, I mean, it's not just a, a good business decision because it is, right? Hey, move to my community. It's clean. It's safe. I'm going to send your kids to college and I'm going to help you build or strengthen your credit. And I'm going to help feed you. That, that's, that is a value proposition for my tenants. But also, I know how meaningful it is to these folks because I've lived with them. I've lived in communities. I still have a wonderful blow-up mattress, and I still sleep on the properties <laughs> when I have to. And I'll, I will tell you why I do that. It's because when I got started in this industry, so I was fortunate enough to grow up middle class, I had never driven into a mobile home park before. And my, one of my first questions about this is, if I am doing this, I need to understand what the end product is. I want to know what does it sound, what does it feel like in the middle of the night with a thunderous rainstorm. I want to know what is it like to have to move your mattress to the middle of your double wide because your air, your insulation is atrocious and it is freezing cold outside and you have three blankets on and you have to go to the bathroom, but you don't want to get up because you'll immediately start shivering because it's cold. You know, when little Miss Janice walks into the office the next day on July 5th, and goes, some kids were keeping me up in the middle of the night shooting fireworks off. I can say, Miss Janice, I know, and I'm just as mad as you because I also couldn't sleep because I live right next to you. So I, I want to know what my end product is. And you cannot get that if you are some big wig with a suit and tie, raising millions of dollars, sitting behind a desk in New York City bragging about your IRR. The only way you can deliver real value like that, not just from a charitable standpoint, but also from a, a selfish business standpoint, is if you fundamentally understand your tenants. And and like I said, I, I have bad days all the time. I Just last week, I had my lift station explode, which is a $5,000 expense, plus, plus, plus. I've had water bills that are, through, that are atrocious, like... 20,000 plus water bills where I've had to spend over a hundred thousand dollars redoing infrastructure. I've had disagreements with the IRS because I made a mistake on a form and it takes three months to get everything sorted out. And then after everything sorted out, they still harass me with these notices because I guess they're automated. And it's like, it's, it's, I want to do things the right way. And when you want to do things the right way and not like a slumlord, you have to deal with bureaucrats and you have to deal with things going wrong. And it is really discouraging, really discouraging sometimes for a lot of reasons. And if you don't have, like, I'll give you a good, for example, when we wrote our first acceptance letter for our scholarship, I, I don't cry very often, but I was holding back some tears writing the acceptance letter. And I have to tell you that is way cooler than any dollar I will ever make. And those moments, like, for example, when this woman came into the office bragging about how her son was going to go to Georgia Tech, and when I asked if he had got his acceptance letter, she said, no, he hasn't applied yet. He wants to apply to Georgia Tech and UGA and Georgia State. And And every single one of those applications costs 20, 30, 40 bucks every time you fill one out. It's over 100 bucks now. Ooh, I'm going by 1990 numbers. I'm sorry. 
it's okay. Well, but for her, for you know, her rent to be three, four hundred, five hundred bucks, and that's how much college apps are going to take. That was a limiting factor in him applying to college. And when I told her, just bring it on in. I will pay for that. I will pay for that. You don't, don't you worry about that. You just worry about getting accepted. Those moments are just so incredible that it makes all the bureaucracy and the thing, the, the potholes and the trees that fall and the lift stations that explode and the infrastructure that breaks. And then it, it makes all of that so worth it. You know, I wish I'd have asked that question at the end of the show because you can't, I can't, I can't promote uh, passion like that. I mean, I could sit here, I could truly feel your passion, your energy. Uh, you know, this is part of your, you know, of who you are all the way down to your feet, you know. Uh, and I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And uh, it really does come through. And um, I'm, I'm glad to see how you, how you've come to understand that things that help your community are, can, can still also be good for business. You know, it's, we have a lot of people out there who think that, uh, that you can either do one or the other, but there's no way you can do them both and be profitable. So you, thank you. You have to, you ha Oh, well, first off, I'm flattered. Thank you. It's, it's a truly a blessing to be able to say, I know what I want to be when I grow up because I was not that way when I started out. So uh, just to, to give you a little background on that, because obviously the name of the show is what's your excuse. Well, to quote one of my favorite rappers, Little Dicky, he has this line from one of his songs where he says, in so many words, and I'll probably butcher this, but he said in so many words, I'm not one of the those kids up on the block that had nothing to lose. I must have wanted this a lot because I had something to choose. That's a hmm. really powerful line. And the that within context, that was a song he did with Snoop Dogg where it was called The Interview or something like that, where Snoop Dogg is a rap, he's a rap label or he's a, a guy hiring rappers and Little Dicky goes in for an interview and they have a really clever exchange of, of, of someone like me, a millennial who has a college degree applying for a job, but it's a rapping job. So it's a, it's a phenomenal song. But it, he makes the point in there that, for him, getting a marketing degree from, I think it was uh, Richmond, to then try to break into what he's really passionate about. He's finding, in so many words, that it's hard to find jobs with a college degree. It's fine to find jobs that you don't feel stuck in, that you don't feel marginalized in, that you don't feel, that you're not passionate about. And for me, I fell into that exact same trap, which was I went to school. I thought I wanted to be in sales, so I studied psychology. And then I went into sales, and I realized I really loved it, with exception to the fact that you only get paid when you sell things. So when I sprained my ankle playing basketball, I had to go out and buy crutches. And I was a car salesman at the time because I had the uh, wonderful timing of graduating in 2009. Uh. So no one was hiring. And I just I, I refused to sit at home. I was like, look, a car dealership's hiring. I need sales experience. Let's make the most of it. And it was a wonderful experience, but when I sprained my ankle, I, I couldn't sell cars for my couch with ice on my, my ankle. So I went out and I bought crutches and I showed up to work and it was going to happen because and it, otherwise they don't get paid. And so it, it was through that experience that I realized I need to find something that I don't need to 
that, that I'm going to, that I'm going to have money coming in. And it just made me realize through that process. Cause I ended up going to, to making the same mistake twice where I went back and got my graduate degree. Cause I thought, well, if I just timed it wrong and sales isn't it because I don't want to work commission only, I want to have stable income. Maybe I'll get my MBA and transition into something else. And I found it was the exact same thing. You do not have a guaranteed job after you even graduate with an MBA from, and I went to Wake Forest University, which it's not Ivy League, but it's a good school twice. Very I went to Wake Forest school. twice. And, and the thing of it, it there was not a, a job waiting for me at graduation. In fact, our valedictorian also did not have a job at graduation, which is an important point. So even if you kick butt, academically speaking, there is nothing guaranteed for you. And for me, I, I found more than once, I, I worked really hard to find a job and then worked really hard in a job to realize I didn't want to get promoted because then I get more stress, I get more stuck in my job, and I don't get that much more pay. Um, and, I, and I can't leave because where am I going to find something else as lucrative as this? So I had something to choose, like, like little Dickie said. You know, you get a college degree, you can find jobs, but it's not the same as having burned the ship, so to speak, like the cliche is. Yeah. So for me, it was real. I fell into the trap of I'm meant to be an entrepreneur. But the, one of the most difficult parts, Max, was having the courage to quit. And when you have something to choose, you must want it a lot. So that's a really meaningful lyric to me. And like you say, what's your excuse? Well, for me, I had tons of them. And because I had no money and no experience and no network, I also had no excuses because there's no reason for me to succeed. So when you strip away the fear of failure because you're staring down the barrel of it's probably not going to work out anyway, you'll find that when things go really, really wrong, as long as you're not dead or, or, or impaired in a way that you can't recover, losing really builds character. And... <laughs> It really does. And if you're a really competitive, passionate person like me, I, I've done some pretty cool things in my life. And if you were to ask me what are my most motivating moments, they're all losses. Losing motivates me way more than winning. And so I guess this is kind of a long-winded way of, of answering what's your excuse. Well, you're listening in and there's something you're truly passionate about. I think you'll, what you'll find in your life is that You've bought a lot of, at least in my experience, when I quit my job and took a over 50% haircut on my earnings and then went and moved in a mobile home, I found that there were a lot of things I was spending my money on that did not bring me any happiness. And it was really scary to cut out a lot of things that I thought were important to me and that once they were gone, I didn't think about them again. And so if you're listening in and there's something you're really passionate about, I'm not advocating quit your job tomorrow. Uh, what I'm advocating, because it took me two years from when I found mobile home parks to go full time. Really what it was is step one, make it your side hustle. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, sure. just, a, just a second. Let me break in here. I want to remind people that this is what's your excuse. Yeah. And I've got uh, Ryan Neris on. He's, a guy who went from pretty much nothing to owning mobile home parks. Now he's up to 10 of them. Um, and this is, um, and you can find him at the Archimedes group, which is ArchimedesGRP.com. Okay. And I was just about to ask you, um, what yeah. was, what was the first thing you did? Because you've, you've mentioned that you really didn't have anything that you needed in order to, to start owning your own business. So what was the very first thing you did? 
first thing I did was I started picking up books and I really can distill it down to four things, learning, networking, becoming self-aware and sacrificing. So step one is I picked up any book that I could get my hands on. And step two was I started talking to anybody with a pulse. I don't care if you're a janitor or a CEO or anywhere in between. I wanted to talk to you. And some of my best lessons I learned were actually from folks that I, janitors, secretaries, school teachers, folks that you would never expect you would learn some very valuable lessons from. And I've talked to some CEOs that are incredibly impressive, that have incredible wisdom. But wisdom comes from everywhere. And I I just, I never want to be too good to talk to someone. And I I also want to say that when I started Mobile Home Parks in July of 2015, that's not really a fair starting point because for years I had been looking for a business to start and I had been reading and talking to people and, and asking who am I at my core. And then when I found Mobile Home Parks, it took me a year to buy my first one, year and change really. And then another year to prepare to go full time. So it took a long time to figure out what I wanted to do. took a long time to prove that it could make money. And then it took a long time to prepare to go full time. And and even then, the, the fourth thing that I mentioned there was sacrifice. When I realized that my number one limiting factor to my business was how much time I was able to allocate to it. And that once all I had to do was strip away other things that were absorbing my time that weren't helping me get to my goal that that was the limiting factor I had to eliminate, that's when I realized it was time. And your number one time suck is your job. And if you can prove the concept, cut some costs, be frugal, and make a big bet on yourself, that's, that's, how I, that's a long-winded way of answering your question about how, how I did it. And yeah, it's, uh, it was quite a journey. Uh, what was the... the- when the with the first property you bought while you were still working at a at a, a traditional job, um, how did you how did you manage to get there where you were able to able to purchase the first park and what's what were the conditions of the park as far as the size and the shape it was in at the time? Sure. So it was an eighty nine lot community outside of Durham, North Carolina. We it was a value add property. So in other words, it was going to take some. TLC, like I mentioned earlier, I, I'm, I'm the type of person I like to roll up my sleeves and make a property worth more because I was there, not because I found arbitrage, right? Not right. because I bought something and not because I stole something. And then, you know, I, I took it from someone who didn't realize what they had, so to speak. Right. I pride myself on, on paying at or above appraised value for properties because I want to pay a fair price or, or even better than a fair price for something and then make it better because, because I, I, because of me. And that was a, a medium-sized mobile home park. And we had networked to find this beautiful thing called OPM, which stands for other people's money. So when you have more student loan debt than actual cash to invest, I mean, I had a pathetic amount of money. There was no, like, it, there was no way I'm buying that property on my own. So in other words, because the ships were burned, so to speak, because I had no other option, I had to get creative. And right. so what I did was I found a group that I was comfortable with and they were comfortable with me and we partnered on it and they had, I think, I think that might've been their 10th. I don't remember what number they were at at the time. So we used that opportunity as a training wheels deal to learn their systems, to basically work for them for next to nothing kind of thing and cash out a, an acquisition fee 
and use that to buy our next mobile home park, which we did. And that was kind of the strategy. And that's when the funny thing is when you have your back against the wall and you don't have a lot of options, if you want something bad enough, all of a sudden you will start seeing things that others don't. And you'll start finding your way into deals, not finding excuses not to take action. You know, if people didn't know better, they'd think I spent like an hour coaching you to use to drop the name of my show every five minutes. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it, by the way, because I used to try to get my guests to say it at the end of the show, and, and none of them ever did it. So I appreciate that. Um, you know, I've, I'm hearing you talk about th- this whole process, and, you know, you uh, you learn from other people by, by partnering with a company that invests in mobile homes. Um, you took that money and invested in the next one. You eventually went full-time at it. Uh, but one thing you talked about was uh, learning from other people and how they, uh, you can, you know, you can learn from just about anybody regardless of, of what they appear to be on the outside. And um, I've mentioned in my last book, how there's a, there's a famous saying that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. But I usually take that a little farther and say, the reason most people don't learn is because they're expecting the teacher to look like a teacher and it seems like your success came from the fact that you weren't expecting the teacher to look like a teacher. If the janitor had wisdom, you were going to take it from him. Yeah, I, so I, I think humility is a very valuable thing. And for me, I grew up with a learning disability. I had attention deficit, hyperactive disorder, ADHD. And thankfully, I had parents who cared enough and had patience to make sure I got my education. But it's a gift and a curse because I'm a very impatient person. And because I'm impatient, I don't want to wait around for a teacher or an opportunity. I'm going to go and make it because I want it. I want it now. And I'm willing to work really hard to make sacrifices to get it. So I think that's a, a really big, important thing. And uh, my father is actually a college professor and I was having lunch with him yesterday. And he told me a kind of a relevant story to this. He said that he's helping college interns now like 20-year-olds who go to J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, big companies for internships. And he said the feedback he's been getting from the students is they don't know what to do. You know, huh. they show up and they don't want to ask any questions because they don't want to sound stupid. And they just, they, they feel like there's not, it's an internship, right? So unfortunately, a lot of it's going to get coffee and make copies and do menial tasks. And he says from their perspective, it's really frustrating because they're going to go to a big, great company like a Wells Fargo, Bank of America, JP Morgan, and they're expecting to get this grand experience and they're basically getting coffee for folks. And, and then the flip side of that is the, the employees that are in their forties, fifties that have been doing it for a long, long time, looking at an intern with a, with a fresh mind and just enthusiasm looking to just absorb anything they can absorb and then getting frustrated when they ask them questions and these interns won't even make eye contact with them. And it's ironic because the student doesn't want to look stupid because they don't want to ask a stupid question, but then because they're not making eye contact or taking initiative or speaking up from the employer standpoint, they do end up looking stupid. (laughs) And so it's, it's kind of a, an interesting dynamic. And so I, what I asked my dad is, is I said, well, how are you going to remedy that as a teacher? And in so many words, cause I've been there cause I've had those internships where the role is undefined. And the answer is you have to have some direction because 
those students are not stupid. And those middle managers that hire them are not bad managers. But whenever you have an undefined role like that, and you have someone who needs a little direction, it's, it's tough to just kind of expect them to go and do things, even when you have someone like me who's just impatient will go do things, right? So from, from yeah. the middle manager standpoint, they want them to go and research and ha- be, have a hunger to go out and learn things. But from the, the intern's perspective, they don't want to ruffle the feathers or be rude or come off as stupid. So what they really need is a coach. They really need some direction. And you know, so, you know, I think I can help these guys. I think I can help these kids because I have, I've come up with, an, with a phrase that I've been sharing for the last couple of years now, and people say it really makes things clear for them. I tell them that when you refuse to ask, you rob the other person of the joy they would have received from either answering your question, helping you, or providing the opportunity that you need at that time. And I find that if I can get people to focus on the other person instead of themselves, that um, that it does help them get to that point where they can, like you say, they can they can express their hunger by approaching some of these people who have done who have been there and done that. Now, whether that will actually translate to interns in the corporate world, I don't know. But I appreciate it if you share that with your dad and maybe let me know what he thinks of yeah. it. I I absolutely will. And and to answer your initial question, the the thing of it is that's ubiquitous. So folks we're used to so we've we evolved over centuries doing relatively menial tasks right where the the task is really straightforward even factory jobs you you you, you hammer a nail factory. here oh especially yeah especially, yeah absolutely and the thing is when when you have very literal instructions it's easy to learn but when you have very vague instructions coupled with a young, maybe awkward, maybe not even awkward individual who their incentive is to not ruffle the feathers so much. It it just creates this dynamic of inaction. And worse, when, so when I worked in corporate America, I took, I remember I had a rotation program, a leadership rotation program where they were quote unquote teaching leaders. And I remember my first rotation, I went, I just went all out. And I actually ended up writing a program that solved a, that basically pulled in live T-bill data that they were making trades off T-bills with 24 hour old data. And the answer is to spend a whole bunch of money on, on live programming. But for free, I wrote a program. And then not only did I write a program that worked, I also did an analysis of how much money that could potentially save them. Because when you're making bets off old information, 1% of the time doesn't sound like a lot unless you do it every day. And then it's an, it becomes an, an inevitability. So I actually quantified the risk that they were taking by not ha- purchasing something that was a little bit more rudimentary than what I crafted. So in other words, I brought real value to the table and I presented that to all my superiors who were like, oh, hey, good job. And then never <laughs> said or did anything after that. And then my next rotation was quite the opposite. I effectively, I didn't take very much initiative at all relative to my first rotation. And I got pretty vanilla feedback either way. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because that's happening now as we're transitioning from more straightforward jobs to more thought jobs. 
where the role isn't very crystal clear and the feedback is even worse and it's very political. And to answer your initial question, um, you're, you, you can't expect people to have very clear direction for you. And especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you cannot expect there to be a book to pick up or a, a manual to pick up to, to, to the, the phrase you used earlier, teachers don't look like teachers. That is absolutely the case. If you are truly passionate about something, you will take the initiative to go and get that education, whether it's through getting on the bike and falling down, so to speak, or going and talking to people or picking up a book that's, or an article that's even somewhat loosely related to something. And, you know, with, with my experience in that rotation program, if I had stuck it out long enough, I probably would have kept taking initiative until I got good enough feedback where I was like, okay, now I'm on, on track, but it was so discouraging that I I did well one rotation and poor one rotation and effectively got the exact same feedback. Life is like that. And you have to go and take initiative and find your own and make, create your own training course and find your own mentors because life isn't going to give that to you. And, and if you want something really valuable, odds are it's not easy. And if it's not easy, not a lot of people are doing it. Uh, my daddy used to say, ain't nothing easy. Uh, then so other days he would say, ain't nothing worth doing easy. Uh, just depending on what, it just depending on how the week was going. Um, but yeah, I'm here again. I'm talking with uh, Ryan Neris on the What's Your Excuse show. Um, he's grown a business in mobile home park community uh, ownership or management. You can find him at Archimedes Group, which is ArchimedesGRP.com. Um, who are some of your mentors and how did you find them, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, absolutely. I Well, I have tons of mentors, whether they want to label themselves as such or not. Sometimes I get one bit of advice from someone and that uh, that advice was game changing. And then I would say I probably have two really close mentors right now. Uh, I did not ask if I could talk about them, so I will leave them okay, nameless. All right. But all right. They, um, they are, I will say this, both of them are folks, one of which is very public. And it is, according to his right-hand man, very difficult to get into his inner circle. And he, it's every time, every now and again, I'll hang out with his right-hand man and he'll be like, how the heck did you do that? <laughs> and the, the answer is for every one of him, there were 99 others who would never return my call or email. So you just have to put yourself out there. But the other gentleman was my, my business partner, Ian's friend from, well, connection from his undergrad. And both of these individuals we had known for years. We had been building up trust for a long, long time before they became quote unquote mentors. So what I will say is you're not going to find a mentor. You're not going to find a teacher just by picking up the phone and making one call uh, unless you, you have a coach, that's a totally different story. If you want to find this organically, it's going to be a lot of work to find these individuals. And then it's going to be a lot of time to have them build trust with you. And, and the really valuable people, it's not just that you've known them for years. It's also that you brought them value and you've proven to them that you're an action taker. and You're not just someone who's going to get on the phone with them and ask over really basic questions and then not do anything with it. Yeah, I've noticed that you've used the word, the phrase offer value twice now, and I'm glad to hear it because it's 
it is a really important thing. It's become even more so for people in the online community to, to, to provide value. Um, and I once talked to a real estate uh, expert who agreed to talk with me for a little while. His, uh, and he, and um, at the end of the conversation, he said, uh, he said, well, kid, if you want to get help from, from people who have been there and done what you want to do, he said, most of the time you're either going to have to pay them a lot of money or be willing to work your ass off and do stuff they need doing. That's true. Uh, you know, and I try to remember that. Um, so what are, uh, you, what are s- some of the ways you think people out here could, act, could pro- provide value that would help them come to the attention of clients, uh, business partners, or, or coaches for that matter? Absolutely. So I, I don't know see as, as providing value. I don't know who came up with this phrase, but it's brilliant. Pain pills will always sell better than vitamins. Okay. And what's so brilliant about that is the way human psychology is set up is when something is nagging at you and hurts. For example, if you were just walking down the street had a really stressful day, had 8 million things on your mind, and then someone punched you in the face, all of a sudden, nothing else would matter except for whatever's in front of you <laughs> and making that pain stop. Whereas if you, the same exact scenario and someone says, hey, you should take this vitamin, it'll, it's good for your health, right? You go, well, whatever, I got 10 other things I need to do first. So in other words, when you are looking for someone to reach out to, it can be as simple as me. I, I, like I said, I, I still will talk to a janitor on up to a CEO. If you reach out to me, I will talk to you. I will not ask for a penny in exchange. I genuinely speaking want to learn from you. And the reason why is because I, 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 there's entertainment value in the regard that I really just, I'm an outgoing person. I love talking to folks. So it, it, it's a dopamine rush to speak to someone. But also I generally, as the son of a college professor, I love teaching. So it's a double dopamine rush for me. But a lot of folks aren't son of college professors and a lot of folks are more introverted. And when there isn't a, hey, could you give me advice because you like teaching, right? There's other ways that you can provide them value. And for a lot of reasons, it can be a pain thing, right? So for example, in my industry, there's not a lot of people that want to do property management. If you reach out to someone and you had a property manager looking for a job or you were willing to quit your job and go and be their property manager for next to no pay or below market or even at market if they're in the market for someone, that's real value. That's a pain point that you solve. And and a lot of times what I notice people do is they go, hey, can I buy you lunch or can I buy you a coffee? Well, I've got a great coffee machine at home and my wife is a (laughs) wonderful cook. So I'm not really in the market to spend an hour getting to you, an hour with you, and then an hour back. And then my mind is shot for the rest of the day, right? That's not real value. Real value is, is finding out. So for example, my one mentor that I mentioned earlier that I broke into his inner circle, I sent him an email. And the reason why I think in my, I saved that email, by the way, the reason why I think that I'm glad resonated, to hear that. The reason why I think that resonated with him is because I read his book and I reached out uh, to him from from a dot wfu dot and at wfu.edu email and I said, Hey, I'm a grad student. I read your book. I had a few questions. 
I love, first off, I loved it. I had a few questions. Do you mind answering them in so many words? And that, uh, that is straight value to him, right? So maybe it's not necessarily pain pills, but it's, 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 if you've ever written a book, there is nothing more flattering than someone going, I read your book. I enjoyed your book. Here's a really good question that you didn't address in your book that I would, I'm genuinely curious to do. So in other words, right. it, it creates, it creates a happiness. It creates a dopamine rush. So if it's either removing pain by solving a problem that they have or adding pleasure by complimenting them on their, their, their book or what they've done in their life or appealing to their desire to teach or to, to, to speak or connect with someone. Right. Says the, says the guy talking to a host who's published three times. So yes, I understand exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Somebody, uh, Facebook last week, um, posted one of those memory things saying that somebody had reviewed my book and I missed it. And it was a big deal, even though it was a year later, you know, um, Somehow I missed it when they posted it originally. So uh, solve a problem or uh, do something that makes them feel better. So I like that. Usually all I get when I ask that question is solve a problem or answer a question or like you say, remove their pain. Ah, okay. And, you know, we talked before and you did mention that if, you know, if somebody is, is, uh, is in the industry, like you said, maybe they are a property manager and they're looking to, to start investing in property themselves and they you know, want to do it the right way, which is building communities like you do, that you, you'd be willing to even talk to people who might someday be a competitor of yours, which I thought was very impressive. Yeah, here's, here's why. What my industry is suffering from right now are medium-sized syndicators. So these are folks that raise anywhere between 5 and $50 million dollars on the supposition that mobile home parks hit outstandingly high returns. And the problem is when you have a new $50 million, 10, 20, $50 million fund being announced seemingly every week, eventually there are too many people. And over the years that compounds. And when you have a two year maturity to place five, 10, 15, however many millions of dollars, and you don't want to go back to the people that you raised the money from with egg on your face because you didn't place the capital. You start getting really creative with your underwriting. And you start making exceptions that brokers take advantage of as they should because they are ethically obliged to get the highest price for a property they can. So what my industry has been suffering from are a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of buying power that are paying way more than they should for these properties and then ending up there's there's two levers you can pull right you can raise the rents or cut the costs and if you're going into something promising investors out outsized returns and then you're both you have to do both and guess who pays for that the residents so from my perspective i my i don't charge a penny i will hop on the phone with about anybody and i am training up my competition i know i am and I'm okay with that. And here's why. Because the people who are going to pick up the phone and call me, the people who are going to email me questions, who are going to read my blog, who are going to watch my free how-to videos online, who are going to listen to my podcast, those aren't going to be medium-sized indicators. Those are going to be people who genuinely care. And if, if I lose out on a deal I really want 
to someone who's going to, even if they don't sleep on site like I do, someone who's going to at least show up to the property and not just sit behind a desk in California or New York City or Florida, right? Someone who's going to be there talking to the residents. I would much rather lose a deal to someone like that than some medium-sized syndicator who's never going to show up. It's all about the health of the industry. And that's good. that's good to hear because there aren't a lot of people who think that way in any industry. You know, it's not just the mobile home parks. It's, uh, you know, just about everything going is all about scale. And can you get to six, seven or eight figures? And how do you do that? And in many cases, the answer is we do it at all costs. So exactly. I'm, I'm impressed with you that you are interested in the health of your industry and in training some of your future competition because that makes it's going to make what you do better in the long run. And as we continue to see housing prices and rents going up and people getting to where they can't afford to live, where they want to live, uh, what you offer is going to become, if not already a critical resource. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a little scary, but it's a little, uh, it's a little awesome at the same time that, you know, you're in a field where unless something catastrophic changes in this country, you're in a field that's only going to grow, I believe, as we go forward. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, the sad uh, thing is Deutsche Bank came out with a, a report, I think it was Q1 2019, where they said only 37% of the people who need affordable housing in the United States can find it. That's wow. one, that's a little bit better than one out of every three. Yeah. Just barely. Yeah. It's uh, like two and a half to one if you're going to do it the other direction. So it's great. It's very bad. Um, I want to give you a chance to talk about your podcast and, uh, sure. and tell people what this, what the show is about. Would love to. It's called mobile home parks in real life. M H P I R L. My name is oh. Ryan Naris. Yeah, it's it's spelled that's what N-A-R-U-S. That, that's what that meant on my that's what that meant on my Apple podcast. I was like, what the heck are those initials? Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, just, Go ahead. I'm sorry, please. Excuse me. Go ahead. Uh, no, you're 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 great. Um yeah, it's Archimedes is really hard to spell. So uh my last name is N-A-R-U-S. That's N like Nancy. It's Google me, I'm the first thing to show up. So does my podcast, right. I mean, MHPIRL, but I just, my industry suffers from a lack of diversity of thought. It suffers from a hype story that's being perpetuated by a handful of people that conveniently also are raising funds or teaching classes, right? So in other words, they're making, they're painting a very one-sided rosy picture of what my industry is and what it's like. And, And what I'm seeing is then it's really hard for people to get in. And then when people get frustrated, who do you call? You call the people who are really public. So in other words, they've created a, a bird dog system for themselves and not just for their investor, like for their funds, for, for investment dollars, but also when a good deal hits and just a, a young kid like myself who can't buy it because I'm just a young kid with no money and no experience, who are you going to call? You're going to call the people who paint a really rosy picture about things. So I said, you know what? I'm sick and tired of complaining about this. I'm going to go out and I'm going to inject my thoughts into a very one-sided narrative. So mobile home parks in real life is not a 
I'm not selling sugar. I'm not selling ice cream on the corner. I'm the, the guy <laughs> at the market selling vegetables. It is not sexy. I do not put a hype story on it. A lot of my episodes will make you uncomfortable because they ask really tough questions. And I think that's what it's, uh, it should be about. I, if you were running a marathon, which coach would you hire? The one who's like, hey there, come buy my shoes. Here's a, the, the tip of the week. Make sure you stretch well before you go for a run. Check out my new blog about blah, da, da. Or would you hire the guy who goes, marathon running is really hard. You need to start off by running maybe three miles at once. You are going to get your butt kicked. It's going to take months, and you may not have the body to be able to do it. It's going to be really hard if you can even do it at all. But if you want this, I'm going to kick your butt, and I'm going to get your butt in shape. Obviously, you're going to hire the latter. Well, that's me. I'm the one who's going to go, look, you're not going to like what I have to say, but if you really want this, you're going to be thankful I'm here because I'm going to give you the tools that you really need. And I'm not selling anything and I'm not raising any money. And, and I'm very public about training up my competition because I want young entrepreneurs like myself to be my competition, not some knucklehead sitting behind a desk in New York City. So that's who I am. That's who I'm about. And I also have a lot of episodes that are not related to mobile home parks. I'll give you a great, for example, it was really hard convincing my wife to, to invest in mobile home parks for a lot of reasons. It was a lot of risk. It was an asset class she had no interest in. And we had a lot of fights and it really tested our marriage. And we came through stronger for having done it. And for anyone starting their own business, whether it's mobile home parks or whatever you want to start and you want to chase your passion, if your significant other does is not in and does not like it, I basically gave the mic to my wife and I said, you have 15 minutes, say whatever you want, just two rules, no bad words and no industry secrets. And she just, she just unloaded on me for about 10 <laughs> minutes. And then we ended up having, I love it. A wonderful, we had a wonderful conversation that was really a, a conversation about marriage spoken through the lens of entrepreneurship. So I have episodes like that. I have an episode called Starting With Nothing, where I literally talk about how I had more student loan debt than cash and what I, what the sacrifices I had to make to do it. So I, I have all sorts of episodes that are not really related to mobile home parks that may be worth a listen if, if you found your passion and you want to go full time in it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to listen to some of these other ones. I'm not exactly sure the mobile home park stuff will... Well, it will interest me unless there's also some other stories in with the with the episode. But some of this other stuff sounds really cool or interesting, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go find some of these episodes that you just mentioned. Um, well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, I can tell from some of the way you explain things that you are a storyteller, and it's a good thing you're not a salesman anymore because you would be dangerous. You'd be selling people cars they can't afford. I just know it. Um. Not in a bad way. I mean, you're just, you, have a, you have a storyteller's gift, and that's something most all salespeople have, at least the really good ones do. Uh, well, well, I, I, I appreciate the compliment. And, and by the way, if you want a fun story, uh, one of my episodes is called The Death Threat, where I had my, literally a, a guy said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up to the office with a shotgun, and I'm going to kill everyone oh. in the office. So it's a, about a 20-minute story. It's wild. And I am... <laughs> stupid for trying to be a vigilante and solve this problem on my own. But I, I, compl I, I do, I, I, I'm flattered that you, you compliment 
um, my storytelling, if you were to ask my wife, who's a very direct person, she would be like, can you make him stop and just get to the point? <laughs> so I'm flattered. Uh, well, you see, I grew up in a family of carnival owners and in the carnival business, when things don't go well, we tell stories. It's generally referred to as cutting up jackpots. Uh, some of them are designed to teach uh, important lessons, but most of them are just designed to kill time until the rain stops or until the day's over and you can take the equipment down and go home. So I appreciate storytellers. I like, and, and I tell people, one of, the, one of the best things you can do for other people is when they do something you appreciate, don't think about telling them that, they did, that you liked what they just did. Just go ahead and do it then. So that's the other reason why I wanted to mention that. So um, as much as I've enjoyed this, I know you have a busy schedule. I know that you just closed on your 10th park. And things are a little crazy in your office, so we'll let you get back to it. But before you go, is there one or two or maybe three thoughts you'd like to leave my audience with that will, as far as them going after their goals, they're, you know, as crazy as the one you started, uh, what, back in 15? Yes, I totally need to piggyback off something real quick. So storytelling was crucial to the development of mankind because before we had written word, the way we, we remembered things were through song and story and, and epics. And so human beings are meant to absorb lessons in stories. So storytelling is crucial. And there are a lot of things I'd love to, to end on. I think the biggest one were the, the four bullet points, the learning, networking, sacrificing, and, and being self-aware. But I, I, the, the one I really want to end on is Stephen Covey's Begin With the End in Mind from the Seven Habits of Highly Effective, of highly effective People. And if you take time, take an hour of your time to just do nothing but think about vividly with detail, what are you going to be like if you're lucky enough to live to 80 and at 80 years old, when you're looking back on your life, how are you going to reflect on that? And I'll tell you what happened with me, which is really relevant, is I said, at 80, am I going to look back on my life and go, oh boy, I am so glad I stayed at my job. That was the safe bet, and I'm glad I did it. Or am I going to look back and go, you know what, even if, so say for example, I fail and I go bankrupt, and I got to go back to corporate America with blood on my face, so to speak the worst case scenario, and I just fall flat at 80 years old. Am I going to think back and go, man, if I just didn't do that, or am I going to go, you know what? I had the courage to do something pretty crazy and unusual to chase after my dream. And even though it failed, I'm so glad I tried. I, I think that's what I'm going to be like as an 80 year old. And, and, and I will push on your listeners Think about that because when you when the, the research shows that the number one pain point for elderly folks in hospice is is what they didn't do in their life, their regrets. And and I will say this too, even when, even if you fail, if you have children like I do, what better lesson can you teach your kids than by doing? By failing, by showing how you had the courage, you didn't play the victim mentality by how you were humble, by how you, you, you showed grit. There's no better way to teach your children. children. Children will do as you do, not as you say. 
And what better thing can you gift your child than a courageous story, whether it works or not? So I'll leave, I'll leave with that. Challenge yourself. Think about what, what are you going to reflect on when you're 80? And use that as, as your weapon to combat your, your, your natural excuse generating self monologue. All right. Well, I really appreciate this. I've enjoyed it a lot. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this, this one myself a couple of times, because I know there has to be stuff I missed. It's been a, it's been an amazing uh, hour getting to sit down and talk with you. And I really appreciate you doing it. I was flattered and honored. Thank you. All right. Okay. We've been talking with Ryan Naris or Naris and uh, he owns the Archimedes group, archimedesgrp.com. And, uh, he's, <clears throat> he has, he has shared with us an amazing story of how he went from pretty much not having anything that he would have needed to, to get to where he is now. The owner of, uh, of a group that owns 10 mobile home parks and who knows, probably working on the 11. Okay, as I was summing up before I pressed pause, as you can tell, um, Ryan dropped a lot of stuff on us this week. And he actually befuddled me a little bit. I was having trouble finding the next word I was going to use. So uh, let's think about what we learned from Ryan this week. Um, Power of networking, deciding to find solutions instead of making excuses, a willingness to do things other people won't do. Uh, I thought it was interesting. He mentioned that he used to sleep on an air mattress. Um, and for a lot of the time I was in the carnival business, I slept on floors or beds that didn't have mattresses. So it's interesting what you will do when you think you're building something. And back when I was working with the family carnival, I did believe most of the time we were building something. So I slept in trucks, on beds, on ride platforms. You know, you do whatever you think you have to do or, as my dad used to say, when we would, you know, when we would surprise the rest of the help and make it in with a trailer or a load that they didn't see there was any way possible we could have got it there by ourselves, he'd always just look at them and grin and go, what? Did we have another option? So sometimes it does take getting to the point of not having an excuse, not having a choice, knowing that the only way it's going to get done is if you do it, and that you're going to have to get dirty and nasty and smelly. And, oh, by the way, you might not even be able to get a shower after you're dirty, nasty, and smelly, but you'll feel good about it because you will have accomplished something important to those big goals and dreams that you have. I loved how he mentioned that he finds teachers everywhere and that teachers don't look like teachers. And I'm really impressed with the approach he takes to his business because not all people can find a way to incorporate uh, giving, community building, um, a passion to support other people in their business model. That just doesn't happen very often. So I'm really impressed by him. And I'm sure the people who, uh, who rent from him, who are part of his mobile communities, are also pretty happy with him. I mean, just imagine not, uh, providing a college scholarship, helping with the application money in the process, uh, you know, helping people improve their credit. So maybe at some point they buy a home or they buy a piece of land and put their own mobile home on it. Uh, really glad that I got to meet Ryan. I've 
had the chance to speak to him twice now. Uh, a total blessing. And, I, of course, I loved how he dropped the name of the podcast, What's Your Excuse, and he referenced it. I mean, he really took the time to get to know me, my show, my audience, and I really hope you guys will reach out to him. Visit his podcast, uh, Mobile Home Parks in Real Life. Uh, visit his website, ArchimedesGRP.com. Send him an email. Let him know just uh, how great a guest he was on this show because he really did bring it. You could feel his passion, or at least I could. And so I really appreciate him and uh, looking forward to getting y'all's comments when this goes live. Um, okay, so once again, the show is sponsored by Chip and Pam Edwards at createmyvoice.com. And just like they have done for the blind blogger and for the What's Your Excuse show, they will prepare your blog and your podcast so that they're able to be picked up by Alexa and Google. People can listen to them on these home speaker devices that are showing up everywhere. And I'm not exaggerating. There are millions of potential customers, clients, listeners, followers out there who are not getting an opportunity to hear your content because you're not on Alexa or Google. So Chip and Pamela make it really easy for you. They do all the stuff. If there are changes that need to be made to your website first, they will talk you right through it. They did that for me, and I was able to figure it out. So um, definitely easy, friendly, uh, reliable, and I couldn't trust them more as far as uh, maintaining my blog and podcast and their presence on these new devices. And you can find them at createmyvoice.com. Uh, they're also on Twitter at createmyvoice. Okay, this has been another episode of What's Your Excuse? And I think that uh, y'all have probably gotten a lot of benefit from Ryan. You can find me at theblindblogger.net, theblindblogger.net. Um, you can always uh, support the show directly by comp contribution by going to paypal.me slash maxwellivy. Uh, and, of course, you can support the podcast by buying my books, my merchandise, the courses, or hiring me to speak. Uh, and you can find out all of that good stuff at theblindblogger.net. So until next time, thank you and take care out there. You know a dream is like a river, ever changing as it flows. And a dream is just a vessel that must follow where it goes. Trying to learn from what's behind And never knowing what's in store Makes each day a constant battle Or just a stay between the shows